0: Hi, I'm Andrea Tollison, an anti-diet intermittent fasting coach, and this is the Intuitively Intermittent Podcast. My mission is to provide women who want the health benefits of intermittent fasting with the community, resources, and coaching they need to not feel stuck on yet another diet. This podcast is one of those resources. Please be sure to seek out medical advice from a doctor or healthcare provider, as this podcast is intended for educational purposes only. Thank you for being here. Now, let's dive in. Hi, everyone. Andrea here, and this will be another sh- solo show. I'm continuing my deep dive into the book, Intuitive Eating, the fourth edition, and I am looking at the last section of the chapter, on the science behind intuitive eating. If this is the first episode you've listened to of the podcast or of this particular series, I am including a couple links in the show notes. The first link will be to the first episode of this series, and then the next link will be to the first episode of this chapter. So that if if you want to um, sort of follow along in order, those are going to be some good resources for you. And As I've said in the prior episodes, I am including a link to the book in the show notes and you are definitely encouraged to get your own copy of the book and follow along with these reflections and and to do some of your own. I am working on building out a section of the Facebook group where we can have some conversations about the content of the book as well as what comes up for you as you read it and listen to the podcast. So definitely check that out. I, if you've been listening for a little while, you know I like to include a section on resources in the podcast here. And I want to touch briefly on a a resource that I haven't talked much about, although it is in the show notes every week, but the resource is called The Dinner Daily, and it's a menu service that we use in our family. Um, So when the grocery store circular comes out you know there's sales every week and the dinner daily has some magic behind the scenes that looks to those circulars and generates a menu that meets my family's needs and the things that we particularly like about it is that um, the recipes are super family friendly and the ingredients are really accessible as well as the recipes themselves being accessible we have found that it saves us several hours a week in generating, uh, our menu plan for the week. And it allows us to try new things that, um, the recipes have been tested and vetted by professionals and reviewed for basic nutritional content and all that stuff. And, um, you know, it generates a, an initial menu, but then we also have the flexibility to customize it whenever, however we want. Um, so they, um, normally they offer a two week free trial that's just their normal deal but then if you use my code which is window worthy 20 that's window worthy 20 you'll get 20 percent off uh, your first membership with the dinner daily so definitely check that out we've been using it now for almost two years and um, have really enjoyed the the journey with that particular tool Okay, so shifting to the reflections on the book, the focus this week of this these um, this handful of pages is on the things that promote or interfere with intuitive eating, and there's a few benefits in reflecting on this section in particular. One, um, I I think I've mentioned that I have a child, uh, an eight year old son, and one of the reasons I'm embarking on this journey. So, um, so passionately is that I really want to minimize my son's non-intuitive eating chances. Um, I feel like I can instill some habits and behaviors now that can, you know, hopefully save him years of struggling with his weight later. Uh, and so that's definitely. A motivation for me. It also provides me an opportunity to look at my own history and how I've got to the place where I am today, as well as then looking at my present and any opportunities for growth that I might have, um, you know, with how I'm existing day to day. The first section of this chapter talks about Uh, parent and caregiver feeding practices. And the first study they mention is from uh, 2010 where they had a bunch of college-age kids reflect back on their childhoods, um, which is, according to the authors of the book, that's a, a novel design for a study. So these college-age students reflected back on whether or not their parents kept track of things like their sweets and their snacks and their high-fat food intake. And I want to read you a quote uh, from the top of page 11 here. Uh, Let's see... So the quote is that parental monitoring and restriction of food intake had a significant impact on the college-age students' emotional eating and intuitive eating scores. So their monitoring and restriction, the parents' monitoring and restriction of sweets, snacks, and high-fat foods had an impact on the college-age students' emotional eating and intuitive eating scores. And I wanted to just touch on that a little bit. So um, the intuitive eating scale was developed um, by Tilka, the last name of the researcher is Tilka. And uh, I think there was another person involved in the creation of that, but they created a 23 question assessment to help folks determine how intuitive their eating is. And eight of the 23 items on the assessment are about eating for physical versus emotional reasons. And so when you, as reflecting back on why that's noteworthy, if someone in college is participating in a lot of emotional eating stuff, it makes sense that eight out of those 23 items on the assessment would be be impacted by that behavior and then it would result in a lower intuitive eating score. If you want to check out the assessment, uh, I have found it invaluable both personally as I've worked on my own relationship to food and eating and I also like to use it with coaching clients as a good benchmark for our work together and areas for improvement uh, as well as areas of strength. So um, I will include a link in the show notes to an online version of the assessment so it is available like the original assessment is available and published in academic journals but um, while I was able to do it you know from reading the journal and interpreting the results as it described I found it a little bit challenging based on how they scored it so I adapted it for the online use and I will include the link in the show notes if you want to check that out. The correlation then between higher emotional eating and lower intuitive eating does absolutely make sense to me because I think about my own behaviors when I'm feeling very emotional and choosing to turn to food, and my inclination is to turn to the sweets and the snacky foods and the high-fat foods. I don't recall any experiences with my parents actually keeping track of those things, but I do know that um, I had a very challenging childhood and I think I've touched briefly on that in past episodes but the consumption of those sweet snacky or high fat foods tended to be behind my parents back mostly so maybe if they knew what I had been up to there would have been some um some attempts to control it more how this shows up with me now as far as interacting with my child is concerned uh you know with sweets there's a couple different perspectives on one hand i want the sweets like chocolate and candy and all that to not seem so special because i feel like if it's um if i tout it as being superior in some way or super special i feel like it it elevates it and my hope is that by normalizing it there'll be less Likelihood of overusing the sweets in the future. On the other hand, um, you know the there's a almost a daily repetitive ask for you know small pieces of candy you know after most meals, and I've been struggling with that lately because. You know, I'm trying to normalize it, yet every single day he's asking, and it makes me worry that it's consuming a lot of his mental space. So, you know, right now I'm struggling with do I make him ask every time he wants to go into the cabinet and get a chocolate? Like, I I certainly don't want to say no because I feel like that sends the wrong message, but I also hate saying yes every time. Like, there's a part of me that's conflicted as a parent. So, then the flip side is well, do I not make him ask? And then, you know, I think the fear, which aligns with some concerns or critiques that people have about intuitive eating is I'm afraid that if I don't make a mask, it could be a bit of a free for all. Um, and I don't know how long it would take. So like I'm wrestling with that. Um, the, the concerns I have for just making it available at any time Uh, is you know I'm in a virtual learning environment with him where he's not going to school currently he's learning online and I simultaneously have to work from home and be a parent and he struggles with attention sometimes generally and so I'm worried about what impact the you know the sugar intake would potentially have on him and my current strategy which it's a little too early to comment on how this is going because it's only been a couple days, but I'm trying to set out um, a number of candies sort of as a weekly limit, um, with the thinking being that he'll be able to enjoy those when he wants to without asking, but that there'll also be a limit to how much he'll have in a given week. So that's that's my current thinking. Um, you know, if I have any revelations or insights on that, I'll definitely share that. Um, in podcasts to come. As far as the snacks and high fat foods go in our family, we, you know, we have tried to model good habits for him. Um, You know, we, and our, and aside from my son, uh, my wife and I, we both practice intermittent fasting and we talk about it in terms of waiting to eat until we're hungry, which is, you know, a true statement. Um, And then we, we include snacky and high-fat foods as a regular, normalized part of our diet, and that includes with him. And then we also try not to use food as a reward, um, which I feel like that's a common thing I've seen um, with others. And I just I want to make it so that foods are not so special in that way. Like, yeah, sure, there's an occasional trip to the ice cream shop, but it's not the regular reward for for successes. Um, the next section talks about um, a different 2010 study that talked about the eating messages that we get from our parents and our caregivers. And the study found that a high level of critical and restrictive eating measures, messages rather, um, had an impact on intuitive eating scores and that they were lower, and it also resulted in higher BMIs. And examples of these types of messages that we would get from parents and caregivers are would be things like eating certain foods could make you fat, talking about dieting or restriction as um, of high-calorie foods just as part of daily chatter when the kids are around, and then also commenting on their children eating too much. And I want to read you another quote here. This quote is on the bottom of page uh, 11. When parents attempt to restrict children's eating, it backfires by disconnecting them from their natural hunger and and satiety cues, ultimately creating the very problems they were trying to circumvent. Um, That just, it really strikes me um, in that, you know, we, we say these things and we hope that they're going to have a positive impact, but the studies are showing that it actually is backfiring. And I don't have any recollection of negative messages from my childhood per se. Um, and I've, I've started to notice a trend with a lot of this is that I don't necessarily have a lot of memories of my childhood. Um, and maybe it's because it was emotionally abusive and, um, you know, Maybe that's why. Maybe I'm sort of a blocking parts of it out um, as a protection mechanism. I don't know. That's some work that I have to do for myself. But how this shows up with my child um, and wanting to minimize these messages, it's, I mean, honestly, that is one of the main reasons why I do this work for myself, is I want to be done with dieting. I don't want him to see me you know, on diets, off diets, weight fluctuating, um, that, that seems to me to be one of the worst things that I can do to influence his behavior, you know, his future behavior as an adult. I also try to emphasize eating to satiety, um, and not necessarily going back for seconds and talking about it in a way that lets him know that I'm listening to my body and then, you know, trying to find the right balance between... Um, Him not wanting to eat something just because he doesn't care for it or, you know, whatever the case might be on a given day, but then also recognizing that there are going to be times where he really likes something, but he's legitimately full. So really trying to minimize the messaging about, oh, you have to clean your plate. Like, I think that's one of the messages that can encourage our children to eat past their hunger cues. Uh, And then also we try to, in our family, we try to include healthy and decadent foods alike just to make sure that there's a a good balance of all of that. The next section of the book talks about self-silencing, which was a new concept to me Uh, and I want to read you sort of a really short little quote here from the top of page 12. It talks about self-silencing is the suppression of one's thoughts, feelings, or needs. And it's thought to begin in adolescence, and they talk about it in the book here as it pertains to uh, women in particular, but they acknowledge that there's some additional studies needed to look at other populations. It's considered to be um, a gender expression among the female gender. Um, So they talk about in the book that silencing your voice goes hand-in-hand with silencing body and hunger cues that go against societal ideals. Um, They found that the highest intuitive eating scores included a high level of emotional awareness and a low level of silencing, whereas the lowest intuitive eating scores in disordered eating was found with high levels of emotional awareness and more self-silencing. So in both cases, high levels of you know being aware of your emotions can either involve higher intuitive eating scores if you don't silence your thoughts and feelings and needs about those emotions versus a low intuitive eating score if you do silence that. And in the middle of page 12 here, the researchers believe that when women have clarity about their thoughts and feelings but silence their voices hunger signals may become confused which may decrease trust of internal signals signals of hunger and satisfaction no excuse me hunger and satiation um, so how did that show up for me in my past i definitely was silenced because of the emotional abusive household, I didn't feel safe talking about my my thoughts and my feelings. Um, I don't recall any specific connection to food, um, but you know that I feel like that definitely just it contributed to me not really having the tools to talk about the things that I've been going with throughout my life. Um, now, how this shows up to me is needing understanding that I need to be aware of my emotions and then be willing to talk about them Um, this podcast uh, is one of those aspects for me it's um, putting words to my experiences and sharing it with people and um, and hoping that it you know empowers you to do some of this work for yourself as far as how this self-silencing shows up for my child, um, I, you know, I feel like it's really important that we talk to our children about their emotions and encourage them to be aware of their emotions instead of trying to stuff them down. And, you know, we definitely encourage him to talk about difficult feelings and acknowledge them as valid, even if even if we don't understand, right? Like with the kids, the smallest thing can seem so important to them, but we're like, oh my gosh, that's so small in the grand scheme of things. So, you know, it, it's hard to imagine what it's like to be a kid, but in their world, the stuff that they're going through is is a lot, even if we don't necessarily understand it. So there's messages that, um, you know, we need to encourage our children to talk about those things and to feel their emotions. The next section of the book here um, talks about body acceptance and body appreciation. And, you know, I've, I've talked about in prior episodes, and the book reminds us that we're born with the ability to eat intuitively. And a lot of the environmental factors are what are actually influencing us to lose our abilities to eat intuitively. And there's a quote here on the bottom of page 12. This is a slightly longer quote, a few, uh, it's about, three quarters of a paragraph here. Intuitive eating can be thwarted by an environment that lacks acceptance and or imposes rigid rules for eating that ignore a person's inner experience, such as hunger or satisfaction. When people encourage others to be critical of their bodies, they learn to eat in a disconnected manner and attempt to regulate their appearance instead of listening to their bodies. Additionally, pressure to lose weight from family, members, friends, healthcare providers, and culture in lieu of body acceptance, contributor, contributes to focusing on appearance-related eating. Many people are surprised to learn that body compliments can be a form of judging a person by their appearance, such as, you look great, how much weight did you lose, or I wish I had a body like yours. There's so much in there um, that is worth commenting on. Um, you know, it talks about an environment that lacks acceptance and imposes rigid rules for eating that ignore inner hunger and satisfaction. Um, and and then there's this notion of being in an environment that is encouraging others to be critical of their own bodies, um, because you know the findings are that the eating then shifts to being about regulating appearance instead of hunger and satisfaction. And then there was pressure to lose weight from family, friends, healthcare providers, and the culture more broadly, and compliments that encourage weight loss. Like all of that stuff just resonates with me um, because I see it so often. Um, I guess not so much now because, you know, there's more social distancing unless, you know, like I haven't been to work in, God, almost eight months. Um, so the how did this show up for me in my past? Once again, I don't specifically have any recollection of my family or my environment necessarily impacting this stuff for me. I do know that a lot of this started for me at the first job I had out of college and weight loss challenges were a regular annual tradition, if you will. And, you know, the intention was wellness, of course, but um, it, it led me down a path to regular dieting. And it did that because I had definitely had a low self-esteem from my past and the weight loss that I was able to achieve during that first challenge resulted in a lot of compliments and um, they were exciting to me and losing weight and dieting f- ended up feeling like something that I had control over when I didn't feel like I had control over much else in my life and then of course with weight loss you know there has to be uh, new clothes purchased um, and at that point I was I <laughs> I had the courage to go bold right it was bold colors bold patterns I even went through a period of time where I was wearing heels which if you've ever met me in person you know that I'm like six feet tall so me in Two inch heels was <laughs> like I, I I never wear heels now unless I'm like at a wedding maybe um, but that is uh, like there was a lot of changes and so people notice right and I know again from my past I definitely have encouraged people that I love and care about into unwanted weight loss efforts and it's something that I regret deeply uh, and still at times feel guilty about. Now, how does this show up currently? I think um, right now my focus is on creating uh, an environment that does not steer people towards a lack of intuitive eating. I try not to give compliments around people's weight loss. I feel like this is a tricky balance because a lot of times when people lose weight, they're super happy about it. They feel more confident and they feel healthier. And so if I am going to talk to them about it, I talk about those things, you know, like I talk about how they're looking radiant or I really like their new clothes or whatever. And I try to Focus less on the weight loss specifically. Um, And then the other part of that is that, you know, when people lose weight, a lot of we know from studies that a lot of diets end up resulting in weight gained at the end because of whatever the person is doing is unsustainable and so then there's a diet backlash. Again, it's our bodies taking care of us, right? Like they think we're starving and so as soon as we're not starving anymore, they pack on the pounds to keep us safe. And so when I have loved ones that do have weight loss, whether it's um, significant or even minor weight loss, I worry about them doing something that's healthy and sustainable or, you know, maybe it's a health concern and I also want to be careful about making sure that my interactions with my family and friends are not different when they, um, you know, are, have a lower weight, uh, right? Like if, if I wouldn't talk to them when they were heavier, then why would I go out of my way to have a relationship with them when they're, when they've lost weight, right? Like those inconsistencies I think can send messages that really focus on weight as, um, as a condition of some sort. Um, so, there's um, there's been four f- essential elements that the studies have shown uh, regarding how body acceptance is found to translate into an, into intuitive eating, and these are touched on uh, in the middle of page thirteen, and it they involve a favorable opinion of your body regardless of size and perceived imperfections. If, so many of us, uh, myself for sure, is I'm able to pick out the things that aren't perfect right um, and so I need to work on thinking of my body favorably even though I have those things that I perceive as being imperf- imperfect uh, and then there's another of those four elements is an awareness and attentiveness to the body's needs uh, healthy behaviors to take care of the body and then an unrealistic rejection of unrealistic body ideals and on the bottom of page, middle of page 13, when women emphasize the functionality of their bodies over appearance, they are more inclined to eat according to their body's biological cues. Furthermore, they found the studies found that adopting an attitude of body appreciation predicted intuitive eating because favorable body attitudes are associated with greater awareness of body signals combined with a greater tendency to honor those signals. In the past, I don't necessarily have a recollection of a negative opinion about my body. Currently, I know that my journey towards non-dieting was like one of the things I've had to do is really marvel at my body and its capabilities. Like I talked just a, a minute ago about how we know that dieting backlash often results in weight gained after a weight loss attempt and I started trying to view that as a bit of a miracle right like every time my body has lost weight as soon as that diet is over my body goes um my body has tried to protect me from that starvation and gained gained weight back and I've tried to reframe that and just really marvel at my body's survival instinct there I also have been trying to focus on the things that my body can do versus the things that my body can't do. You know, I am um, in my early 40s and definitely starting to experience aches and pains that I didn't have even just a few years ago. So how do I make sure that I'm appreciating the things that my body can do versus the things that are going to become more difficult with age and that's you know that's a challenge at times and then also I I'm trying to work on accepting my my current body size and taking care of it you know what are the behaviors I'm doing but am I doing them for reasons that are sort of independent on weight right like am I doing them because I feel like they're making me feel better and have more energy and whatnot uh, and making sure that I don't focus on potential weight loss as the goal. That's one of the things that I'm doing to appreciate my body a little bit more. As far as my child goes, um, you know, I'm trying to focus on the capabilities of the body. Um, and, you know, he's he's a slender child. Uh, there was his last wellness appointment I guess it was his eight year, no, seven year checkup last year, the nurse commented on how he was on, he was skinny and like, but he, she said it in a very negative way. And in front of him, I, I advocated for him, you know, just the message that his body is where it needs to be. And it's, you know, he's growing, he's thriving and his body is taking care of him and just really trying to be mindful of that message. Just a couple more comments before I wrap up here. Um, there's another several pages in the book uh, that talk about culture and um, objectification. And I want to just touch briefly on those. The, the Our culture that we live in is, I feel like it's becoming easier and easier to compare and critique others' bodies, whether it's, well, I mean, the only one I sort of know of offhand is like Instagram I know you know people sharing their photos and whatnot Um, there's the book talks about this the ability to compare and critique others bodies as a form of objectification where person's self-worth is somehow tied to their appearance and how I how this currently shows up for me I lately have have pulled back from social media quite a bit Um, it's hard to say when I'll dive back in Um, When I do participate in social media, I try to be very careful about who I follow and, you know, just watching the messages they're putting out. And then, you know, I feel like there's always a celebrity who's undergoing some sort of a weight loss transformation. And I try not to participate or perpetuate that. Um, I also admittedly don't necessarily speak up, um, you know, to the other side of things and that's something that I sort of have to ref- wrestle with you know I, I tend to maintain my silence um, which in many ways perpetuates the issues um, but I definitely if I am going to engage in those conversations I try to focus on the accomplishments of the the celebrity involved really that, that have nothing to do with their body or their weight um, there, the book also talks about the the cultural aspects and uh, I am gonna admit that I have a lot of ignorance around the racial history and the racial aspects of fat phobia. I'm gonna include a link in the show notes to a potential resource if this is something that you want to look into a little bit. The author Sabrina Strings has written a book called "Fearing the Black Body: The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia." Um, the little bit I've I think I listened to an interview of her at one point, point. Um, and the it's really eye, it's been eye opening the stuff that I have uh, learned about that. But um, you know, hopefully in the future I'll add that to my my reading list. Um, but right now my you know my hands are pretty full trying to work through this workbook or the you know the intuitive eating book and share the reflections with you all on a in a way that hopefully you find meaningful. So, um, you know, there are a couple pages in this chapter, um, but uh, I didn't want to necessarily speak to anything in particular on those, so definitely check it out. This chapter... has been three episodes this this episode today has been touching on pages 10 through 17 so the next uh the next podcast i release will be on the next chapter which is called hitting dieting rock bottom or hitting diet rock bottom and i'm i'm gonna try to see if i can just do it in one episode um so plan a little bit better uh no promises on that but i'm i recognize that spending you know three podcast episodes on 15 pages of the book or something like that is a little bit might not be accessible for everyone so um you know bear with me as i try to figure out the best way to do this and definitely let me know in the podcast group if you have any comments or questions or things you want me to explore in more detail i would love to know how this stuff is resonating with you and um and what impact it's having on your own work with this material. So uh, that's all for now. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks again for listening to the Intuitively Intermittent podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, you may be wondering what happens next. Whenever you are ready, here are three additional ways I can support you. First, head over to the Intuitively Intermittent Facebook group. It's made up of people just like you and is a safe space in which to find support and ask questions. Second, the group coaching program based upon my Freedom for Life framework starts up several times a year. The best place to stay informed about that will be in the Facebook group as well. Please share your interest and your email address in the entry questions for the group. Lastly. I do work with a limited number of one-on-one coaching clients. If you resonate with me and my message and want to see if working together is a good fit, please send an email to hello at thiswellseasonedlife.com, and I'll reach out to you to set up a time to talk. Enjoy the rest of your day, and remember, your value as a person cannot be measured in inches and pounds.